Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. We are speaking with Eva Ho of Fika Ventures. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your focus of the fund. How big is it? What are you uh, focusing on? What size investments are you making? Let's get to know each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we launched Fika Ventures uh, earlier this year in February. I came from another fund that I co-founded uh, in 2012 called Susa Ventures. So this is my second fund. Um, it's uh-huh. a $40 million, it's a $40 million fund. Uh, it's based in Los Angeles, but we make investments um, in all over California, the L.A. Bay Area, uh, also other markets like New York, Boston, um, and then some other markets that we find where we find really interesting founders. We made one investment in Austin, uh, but those okay. are four uh, markets, um, mostly enterprise software, uh, B2B companies, um, mm-hmm. and a very, with a very heavy lens uh, on data and sort of data-oriented companies. Okay. And what size investments do you like to make? Yeah, sure thing. So we're uh, we're very much a pure sort of seed investor. Uh, there are times, I mean, I guess now seed is, can be broken down to pre-seed, seed, and post-seed. A majority mm-hmm. of our investments is in seed. Uh, we've done a couple of pre-seeds with repeat founders. Uh, our tech sizes range from 500 to a million, um, and mm-hmm. we're happy to lead most of our investments we lead, um, but we also enjoy having other people around the table who can add value. So we will often uh, like to co-lead uh, as well as we're, to be part of a uh, wonderful syndicate. We're, we're happy with all versions of that um, okay. type of Talk to us about your current portfolio, just to give us a feel for what kind of companies you have invested in and how did you decide to invest in these companies? Take us a bit through the process of how you've thought about the investments that you've made so far. Sure. Um, maybe I'll take one quick step back and talk about sort of what we learned over the, this year. We've looked at uh, a little over 1,500 investments. Um, our team is a team of four, um, mm-hmm. and we ended up uh, making investments in less than sort of 1% of the company. So we've made about a dozen investments. Not all of them are on our website. I think we have seven or eight of them on our website. Um, if you look at the individual investments, uh, you'll notice that there's a, a bit of a trend. So we like to focus on um, uh, companies and founders that are trying to solve problems uh, in helping sort of antiquated industries become digital um, and mm-hmm. really looking at plat- platform companies uh, and applying ML, uh, deep learning, as well as data uh, to solving some of these issues. So I think a lot of funds today um, definitely pitch this angle of data and ML. So we might all sound a bit similar, uh, but I have a long history uh, in data. I was co-founded a company called Factual where we were building uh, AWS with data. I was one of the uh, early uh, employees that applied semantics, which was the company behind AdSense. Um, and we sold that to Google in uh, 03. I was at Google for many years. So we've always had a strong thesis that um, some combination of uh, ability to store and use and process more data combined with uh, more sophisticated algorithms over time will be able to solve and automate a lot of uh, really interesting uh, industries. So some of the industries we made bets on, um, and some others have shied away from these, but we really like legal tech. Um, so over at SUSE, mm-hmm. we made two investments in legal tech, uh, simple legal and case tech. Uh, we continue to do that uh, through FICA. Uh, we made investment in fair claims. 
which is a online arbitration legal disputes platform. Uh, so mm-hmm. they start off by helping uh, third-party marketplaces uh, resolve uh, consumer disputes, um, which is really interesting. Uh, we made uh, another investment um, in a company called WeCare, which is around daycare, um, which is solving sort of the imbalance of supply uh, of available early childhood education uh, with the needs of parents and children, um, and that's a very interesting investment. Uh, we made an investment in a company called Pull Request in Austin that focuses on code review as a service. Um, we co-invested with a Gradient from Google. Um, so, yeah, so those are just a matter. We did one in commercial appraisal out in New York um, called Bowery. Uh, we did mm-hmm. one in package spec data. So if you, if, we, if you look at most of them, look, there's taxes. We worked on packaging data. It's a lot of these sort of unsexy industries, but where we feel yeah. the applications. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit unique for a fund that started out that is in LA because a lot of people don't don't think of LA as a B two B market. Right. So, in, in the fifteen hundred or so deals that you've seen this year, is this a trend that there are a lot of um, archaic industries? Um, are getting heavy infusion of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and you're seeing entrepreneurs emerge in categories like those? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we were working on Factual, uh, this was in 2007, and we were going and pitching big data and APIs. These were the early days of APIs to the larger Fortune 500s. Um, you know, a lot of them were scratching their heads and not really seeing the importance of it. So we're early in trying to deliver the message of really systemizing your data, uh, standardizing it, um, having data as a core component of a lot of the uh, – and determining product opportunities and, and basically affecting every function that you have. Um, as that conversation progressed over the years, uh, I've watched the Fortune 500 companies uh, really come full circle and be much more receptive to it. Um, in, in that, they're more receptive to working with uh, and buying technologies from younger startups that have these capabilities. Um, I, I can't say every company, say a, say an insurance is, uh, every Fortune 500 is buying new technologies, but I would say a majority of them have their eyes wide open and are willing to pay for these technologies as well as make investments. Um, a lot of them have venture arms uh, into these types of startups. Interesting. So um, this is actually a, an interesting segue into uh, a trend question that I was planning to ask you a bit later, but let me ask you now. How do you parse unicorn mania? Um, the kind of deals that you're looking for, the kind of investment thesis that you're working with, is not necessarily a unicorn investment thesis. And I like that. I personally like it very much that you are going after all these niches where I think there is tremendous amount of investment opportunity, great investment opportunity, great value creation opportunity on behalf of the entrepreneurs. How do you view unicorn mania, though? Um, I mean, I'm not sure I would say these are niche applications. I think... Uh, let's take fintech, for example. Um, in the past, I would say 10 years, five years ago, a lot of the applications you were seeing were solving very sort of pinpoint uh, processes, improving pinpoint processes, improving very specific workflow, for example, like putting loans online for a bank or something like that. Nowadays, we're seeing much more sort of platform companies that are changing and revolutionizing entire industries, right? You look at Stripe, uh, you look at LendUp, uh, Betterment, right? These are not 
uh, I wouldn't say they're niche applications. I don't think they're niche applications at all, no. They are yeah, much broader. So, yeah, yeah. So, so we do see the capabilities of uh, companies in these different sectors. And insurance is right now, we're, we're seeing a lot of heavy investments in insurance. I mean, today they just lemonade announced a, uh, a big investment. Um, we're a big investor in Policy Genius out of New York that does life insurance. So we think that there are uh, these new types of companies that have the potential to be unicorns. Um, and we don't really invest unless we believe a company could be a large company. I think unicorn is overused. Uh, we really are much more looking for founders that are ambitious and feel that they are in it for the long haul and want to build something that's truly sustainable and valuable. That's it. Um, I think we really shy away from founders that come in and say, hey, you know, I really want to solve this. I'm willing to work on this for, I don't know, two to five years. And, you know, I want to be bought by MetLife. Like, yeah, I think there are investors that might care about that. But for us, that message uh, and that sort of ambition is not aligned with what we want to do. We want to aim for companies that are going to be one of the top 12 companies, you know, ev that come out every year. Um, and I think there's plenty of room for a lot more of these companies to play out. Um, so anyways, we could talk about this for a while, but, uh, but that's sort of what we're... So uh, a follow-on question on that then is, as a seed investor you could get buried on the later stage liquidation preferences in these unicorn deals. How do you protect yourself? Well, we're not really even thinking about that uh, right now from the sense that our term sheets in the early days are really clean and vanilla. Like we don't do ratchets and preferences in that. And, and even in most of our Series A investors, it's very, very non-standard for those terms to play a part. Um, you know, well, you are not asking, doing it. I'm, uh, the question, though, is not about your term sheet. I'm talking about, and you probably haven't got to that yet because you're such a new fund, such a young fund. But if, if one of your deals or some of your deals get to a point where they become a hot company and the feeding frenzy of the late-stage fund starts and then, you know, valuations run up, amount of capital raise runs up, and, and, and gradually... Often these deals get into very dysfunctional territories, and, and it's very unhealthy territory for early stage investors, seed stage investors in particular. Have you thought yeah. about that? Uh, absolutely. So um, over at SUSA, which is a, now a five-year-old fund, we invested in Flexport, uh, KDM, LendUp, um, lots of very large companies, Robinhood, um, which you could call a unicorn company at this point. So many of them in the hundreds of millions of valuations. So we've dealt with late stage investors. Uh, we know many of them. The, there's really no true way for protecting ourselves except to add value as investors early on to have a good relationship with the founders and making sure the founders' interests are protected. Uh, I think most founders are not do not win when they when they have a lot of these weird terms involved in later stage. So it's a matter of leverage and optionality. Um, if you're building a valuable company, I think most founders will not stand for these terms. However, if you don't have the optionality and Sequoia comes in and say, I want to put in ratchets or whatnot, there's not a ton that we can do to protect ourselves. So that's a roundabout way of saying that as an early stage investor, we try to be as helpful as possible. And if you talk to most of the founders that we work with, um, and by the way, for, as LPs in our fund, uh, we have a bunch of founders who are LPs in our fund that we've worked with before, which I think is very good validation that we do do good work with them. Um, we hope that we can preserve that relationship over time and that our interests with them will be aligned. Mm -hmm. And how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream with all these larger funds uh, wanting to invest in much larger uh, Series A deals? What, 
how does a seed investor or an entrepreneur, for that matter, mitigate the Series A gap? There is clearly a Series A gap, you know, 50 to 70,000 seed stage investments, only 1,200 to 1,500 Series A. So where, how do you view that phenomenon? Uh, yeah, this is a real challenge. Um, it's a great question. Um, I don't have all the answers to this, and we're watching the market dynamics change um, on a sort of month-to-month, year-to-year basis. You know, when we started SUSE, which was a $25 million fund five years ago, uh, the market, the seed market, was quite different. We were able to get into deals easier. Um, certainly mm-hmm. back then, we weren't writing as large checks. We were writing 250 and we could get into a lot of deals just you know, by wanting to be in the deal. Nowadays, because we're playing playing sort of more of a primary position and want to put in a larger check, there's a ton of competition at the seed level. There's a lot of funds that popped up. I think uh, 2016 had the record number of micro funds that have come up. Yes, indeed. Uh, so there's just a lot of capital, yeah, and, and a lot of the big funds are also playing in the seed stage. Um, in the past, they wouldn't have, but now they have scouts and they have all sorts of, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, instrument um, where they can write a million dollar check and uh, into a company because it doesn't really matter to them. It's just an optionality play. So, so we're watching those dynamics carefully. Um, and for us, I think, you know, the only thing we can do, we make about 10 to 12 investments a year and we've had a very good record. If you look at our first 10 investments, uh, our seed investments, most of them have other well-known investors in play. Um, we don't believe in taking uh, sole positions in in these investments, even though we write a large check, the seed rounds have gotten bigger, as you know. So they're no longer uh, 750 to a million. They're more like two to three million. And thus, we have room if we put in a million for somebody else to be uh, one or more people to be co-investors. And we like to co-invest with folks that we really enjoy working with. So we've done uh, investments with USV and Homebrew and Felicis and others um, and Gradient from Google. So uh, we hope that by having the right people around the table, um, that these you know founders will have a better chance at getting a strong Series A, even though the metrics for Series A keep moving up and up. You know, so I think in the past for a SaaS company, people would say, well, if you hit 100,000 uh, MRR, then you're ready for a Series A. I would say now that bar has moved, and you're looking at more at 100 to 150 to 200,000 MRR before you can raise a strong Series A, and we're helping these young companies by giving them a bit more capital to start so that they have the runway uh, to actually make a strong play for a Series A. So you do seed and sometimes post-seed before the before the companies are ready for a full Series A? Yeah, we have, you know, we do 50-50 reserves. Um, I think there are, and we've done some pre-seeds, so we're pretty flexible, meaning if there is a company that where we raised, you know, we helped them raise one and a half million with other investors, and they may need another five hundred thousand to get to um, to get to be able to raise a Series A, and we believe in them. Um, then we will be happy to do that extension. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Well, um, what are your um, parting words to our community of entrepreneurs who may be interested in working with you? Uh, well, we're you know we're really excited to look at uh, all types of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I think my background is quite different than a lot of the typical investors. Uh, I grew up in Mozambique, Africa. I came over as a, as a refugee. I grew up in the housing projects in Boston. Uh, I went to school on full scholarships. So I didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. You know, my parents both don't speak any English. Um, they've never sent an email 
Um, I share that only to say that we hope that we bring a different lens to entrepreneurs from all all around. I mean, today we don't do global investments. Um, we don't know whether we ever will, uh, given we're still a small shop. Uh, but we certainly are looking for investors that don't typically look like uh, the sort of white male investor. It's not that we're looking for specifically female investors or whatnot, but we just have a broader aperture and understanding um, that innovation can come from lots of places and lots of types of people. Um, and we're looking for people who are solving um, problems that are not just uh, faced by the 1% uh, of the population. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really excited to be in business and, uh, you know, please apply and we ha- we're happy. We're looking forward to meeting, meeting you. Great. All right. Well, uh, thank you for participating, listeners. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please go to iTunes and review the channel. And uh, hopefully you'll stop by at one of our free mentoring roundtables for Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Pacific time. Look forward to meeting you there, and we'll be back with more. Thank you very much for coming. Wonderful. Thank you.